My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have mo almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're looking at verse 13. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Have we been making our way through the Ten Commandments? Twenty-four thousand five hundred and seventy-six. Twenty-four thousand five hundred seventy-six homicides in the year 2020, according to the CDC. To get good statistics, you have to be patient. We don't like to be patient. We want statistics from last year, but those are the best stats we have right now. 2021 is considered to have a significantly massive upturn. In fact, in the city of Columbus during 2021, our homicide rate is projected to have risen by 63%. 63% in the year 2021. The pandemic is the reason that criminologists have cited that this has happened. So that, what that means is in a time when disaster struck in our city and people should come together to support and care for one another, we killed each other at a rate that is 63% higher than what we had done in previous years. 24,576 times image bearers of God declared out to other image bearers of God, you are no longer worthy and I will take your life. We look at the sixth command and often think, well, that's the one that I obey. We don't need to hear that anymore. But 24,576 times in the year 2020, that was untrue. We take life still this is an old sin that has been around since Cain and Abel. And it is a sin that continues to permeate its way through every culture and every place on the planet. Image bearers of God take life. This is a sobering reality. And when we hear these statistics, I'm sure our hearts sink and as we look at this command today, I want us to consider three questions that will help us understand why does my heart sink when I hear this? Why does this continue to happen? Why does murder continue to be a thing? And how do we as Christians ultimately show that we want to be the opposite of that? And so what we want to look at is that God values life. That the opposite of murder is to put value on life. So one, I want to look at this. Why is life valuable? 
Two, how does life lose its value or how do we devalue life? Or why do we devalue life? And three, how do we display for the world that we do, in fact, value life? And so we're going to work through those three questions considering this command of you shall not murder. So first, we want to look at why is life valuable? In the Christian worldview, why do we believe that life matters? Now, it's easy, I think, for all of us to look and say, why is life valuable? Well, it's a lot better than the contrary, right? Death isn't good. We can all agree with that. So I guess life is valuable. But that's not really where the Christian worldview leaves it. It doesn't just say that we are valuable, but it says that, that God considers you to be valuable. The Christian worldview goes further than that you would just value your own life or maybe even value people like you or the value of the life of family members. But God himself says that human beings are valuable. And that's an incredible thought. In fact, the psalmist asks a really good question. In Psalm 8, verse 4, he says, What is man that you, talking to God, are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? That is a good question to ask. Why would the God of the universe find us to be valuable? The psalmist continues, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If we look at Psalm 8 and we ask, why does God value life? It's because he has appointed value to life. He has made us and created us and set us to have dominion over all things. And it tells us he looks to humans, his image bearers, and he has crowned them with glory and honor. You are valuable because God has declared you valuable. Psalm 139, which we read for the first portion of this morning. I want to go to verse 13. And it says this about human beings. The psalm is about what we saw this morning, is the glory of God. And, and, and he gets to this point where there's nowhere I can go to, to, to keep myself from you. I don't know what to do. But Psalm 13, or 139, verse 13, he says this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in, an, in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when there was yet none of them. We are valuable because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are valuable because you are created. And we cannot separate our value from our createdness. That's what we have to see from these texts. He is fearfully and wonderfully made. God has crafted together each human being from the time of Adam and Eve as he crafted and sculpted Adam out of the dust of the earth. The psalmist tells us he continues to be a part of even the natural process of procreation as he looks into our lives. And before we're even yet formed, he knits us together in our mother's womb. In his book are written, he has a plan for your life every one of your days. You are formed and your life is matters and it's meaningful because you are created. 
Genesis 1, 27 through 28 tells us, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. Life matters because we are created, because we are fearfully, wonderfully made, and that God who fearfully, wonderfully made you crowned you with glory and honor to exercise dominion over this world in his stead. We are more valuable than the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field because we are made to rule over them for the sake of their flourishing and everyone around us. We display back and image back the very character of God when we exercise dominion the way that God exercised dominion, not in an autocratic nature, not in my way or the highway, but in the nature that is compassionate and kind and slow to anger and endears himself to his creation, who leaves heaven to come and take our place on a cross. That's the kind of God we serve. And he looks to you and he looks to me and he says, you matter and you're valuable. Because I have made you and I have crowned you with glory and honor. You're made in my image and you have a purpose. In steep contrast, we live in a world that has removed our createdness. We don't want to acknowledge that we are created. And what is happening is that you inevitably will remove value from life. You cannot hold on to value of life if you remove the created nature of created beings and the creator declaring them valuable, crowning them with glory and honor. To give an example of this, I want to quote Peter Singer. He is the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. He is writing in a book called Practical Ethics in this moment, and he is writing about human babies, and he's talking about what makes us valuable. He's trying to talk about personhood. And so because he can't run to and cling to createdness like we would, cling to what God has appointed us like we would, he has to grab something else to declare that you're a person and declare that you are valuable. And what he does to do that is self-awareness. He says if you are self-aware, that makes you a person, and if you are self-aware, therefore you are valuable. So then he comes to this conclusion about human babies who he claims are not self-aware. And he says, human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. Therefore, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. He goes on later in that book, Practical Ethics, to argue that it is good and ethically permissible to end the life of disabled infants a week after they are born, maybe even 30 days after they are born. We're not even talking about abortion here. We're talking about flat-out infanticide. Disabled babies are not valuable inherently, according to Peter Singer. Now, I quote him because, one, yeah, he's extreme, but two, because he's not some little league philosopher with a YouTube channel. He is the professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He matters. His words matter. He is publishing and he is writing. And he has to answer a fundamental question about life of an ethicist. Why do human beings matter? Why are they valuable? And the best he can come up with when he divorces himself from the image of God is they're self-aware. Which means anybody who could be determined as not being self-aware... He is not inherently valuable. 
And what we have to say as Christians as we look at this is what God says about us is your value is not found just intrinsically in yourself. Your value is found outside of yourself because you reflect the beauty and the nature and the character of God, which includes those who are not yet self-aware. It includes every human being made in the image of God, the mentally impaired, the physically impaired, the unborn and the aged, the person that you're just really, really mad at carries with them the image of God, and they are valuable. Every time we murder 24,000 times, 24,576 times in the year 2020, not counting things like abortion, not counting things like deaths that are due to negligence, not counting things like uh, self-murder and suicide, we declare and cry out human beings that human beings are not worthy, they're not valuable. But what, here's what I want to tell you this morning is that from a shaking mountain filled with smoke and fire in Sinai before his people, God speaks directly to his people and he cries out from the smoke and he cries out from the pillar of fire, you shall not murder. And when he cried that out and he gave that sixth command, he declared all life matters. Every life is valuable. And it's worthy to be protected, cared for, and loved. This is why things like self-murder or suicide or self-harm are wrong. Not to make people struggling with those things feel bad, but rather to say, you matter. You are worthy. When we hurt and harm and kill ourselves, we are clearing out to God, I know better than you do. And I'm finding my worthiness in myself or in something else. And we, we're driven to a place of utter despair. But we want to cry out that the gospel has better news. The gospel says you're created, you're matter, you're fearfully, wonderfully made, crowned with glory and honor. You are worth life. And that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ declares to you through the sixth command. It declares to the mentally impaired, the physically impaired, the unborn, the aged, the broken, and the battered that they are intrinsically valuable. You matter because God has declared that you are valuable. And this is the beauty that we get to see. And if that is true, we have to ask, why do we still do this? Why do we still murder? And to do that, I want us to go to Genesis chapter 4. And we're just going to look at verses 1 through 10 as we take a look at the first recorded murder. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. 10. It will be on the screen if you want to follow there. I always encourage you to turn in your own Bible as well. Beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 4. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This is what Eve has said. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So you have these two brothers, they bring offerings to God, and God has regard for one and not the other. And so, picking up there halfway through verse 5, so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We see there 
What is Cain's motive for murder? He has become angry because God has not seen his sacrifice as, as holding regard or being worthy. And God is telling Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And he's coming to Cain and he's speaking to Cain, but he warns him. Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It is waiting for you. It is its desire. He personifies sin and he says his desire is contrary to you. Sin wants to kill and destroy you. You must rule over it. We cannot let our desires rule us. And that's what happens to Cain. He does not heed the Lord's warning. And instead, sin rules over Cain. And his own desires and his own sin drive him to verse 8. And Cain spoke to Abel's brother. And they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Cain kills Abel because Cain is angry. Because he is ruled by sin and ruled by desire. And that leads to death. It will always lead to death. In this case, the death of a brother and separation from Cain and the Lord and his people. This is why... In Matthew 5, 21 through 22, when Jesus teaches on this command, he says this in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And that term there is... is, is, is like crying out, you're unworthy, you don't matter, you fool. He's saying if you cry that out, you'll be liable to hellfire. Now this, this liability that he's talking about, that if you just get angry, you're liable to the judgment of God. He's saying you've broken the sixth commandment. If you're angry with your brother, if you insult them, and if you call them a fool, you are liable to judgment. And the judgment that he's referring to, Genesis 9, 6, God says to Noah, After they come off of the ark, he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God is instituting a form of capital punishment. He's saying if you remove the life of an image bearer, the right thing to happen is that you, it would have your life removed from you. And that's what he's crying out and making clear in in that moment. And we have to look, and if Jesus is saying, listen, if you get angry with your brother and you're liable to judgment, he's talking about this, death. He's saying you've sinned against a holy God. And, and Paul later tells us the wages of sin is what? It is death. This is what we deserve. We've been seeing this in every command so far, that we break it, and the rightful thing to happen is that we die before a holy God. But yet we know we don't die, because one has already died in our place. We pick up on this theme of what it looks like. So whether it is in Genesis or, or later in, in Matthew or here again in the book of James, verses four, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, he says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you 
Why do we devalue life? Why do we murder? Why do we take life? Every time that happens, there is a war waging within a human being between their desires and what is right. And when our desires rule over us and they master us like they did with Cain, that is what leads to murder. Of any form and any kind, our desires run rampant and they rule us. And that's what leads us to kill another image bearer of God. It's easy to look at Peter Singer and others like him and make them the enemy. It's easy to look at them and say, let's pick on them. We'll feel really good about ourselves because we have the right view. They have the wrong view. But what I want to do is I want to bring Peter Singer into the conversation because I want your jaw to drop because I want you to know you're more like him than you're unlike him, according to Jesus That if you grow angry with your spouse, with your brother or sister in Christ, with your siblings, if you insult someone, if you call them a fool, he is saying you are murdering them in your heart. You look more like Peter Singer than you look like Jesus. And you take that image bearer and you devalue them in your life. And you say you don't matter, even though the God of the universe has declared that they do matter, that they are valuable. And when we do that, we see the fact that we do not live up to the works of the law and that we are liable to judgment, the judgment of God, the judgment that says whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, the judgment that says that the wages of sin is death. If our hope is just to be good enough to stand before a holy God, we will be hopeless Because nobody here can tell me that they have never been sinfully angry. Nobody here can say that they've never insulted somebody else. I don't think there's probably a person in here who could honestly tell me they made it this week without getting angry at somebody. But we have good news. We have incredible news in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because even though we deserve death, God rich in mercy and love, loved us so much that he sent his one and only son. He was born of a virgin and he lived a perfect life and he never was sinfully angry. Never did he insult or say things untrue about somebody else. Never did he get enraged about a perceived injustice that wasn't actual injustice, which is what we do all the time. The only time we see Jesus getting angry is because holy, perfect wrath is being stirred against sin, which is the rightful response. And I think Jesus is probably the only one of us that really do that. Because even when I'm sinned against, when I get mad about it, I'm usually not mad because they've sinned against God's law and then I want to turn them back to Jesus, I'm mad and I want, their, I want my pound of flesh. But what Jesus shows us in his life is even in his anger, if we can think about the time he tips the temple and he disrupts it, right, what do we see? He was disrupting their ability to falsely worship. And then he went and his own body was the temple and people that stirred holy wrath, he bore the wrath of God for them. And he died for their sins And he died for my sins. And he died for you. And then he rose again from the dead. And he conquered sin and death, including the sin of your anger. 
And that is an amazing and wonderful thing, is even though you are liable to judgment and death, Jesus has conquered your sin when he rose again from the dead. And if we put our faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, we will be saved. That's the promise of the gospel. Is that sinners like me and you can come to know him and love him. And what's so great about the gospel is that isn't the end. God just doesn't say that he atones for your sin and atones for your anger. But he tells you he also provides a way forward. That when you come to know Jesus, your life is changed and your heart is changed and you have the ability to be different and to conquer anger. When we look at this, that brings us to our third and final point this morning is how can we display value for life? How do we show the world that we are a people who value and love life? And I want to suggest is that we do that by showing that we are peacemakers. In Matthew 5.19, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be sons of God. If we go back to Matthew 5, verses 23 through 26, he finishes this teaching on anger, and listen to what he says. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard. And you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What is Jesus telling us to do? When he teaches on murder, when he teaches on anger, he doesn't just stop at, so don't be angry anymore. He continues to go and he says, go and be reconciled. Go be a person of peace. Go be a peacemaker. Leave your your gift at the altar and go make it right and reconcile to that brother or sister in Christ, to that person. We have to be those kinds of people, people who understand that that it's not enough to just not be angry. That's not what the commands are telling us to do. What we want to see is that we want to put off those old ways and put on new ones. So we're not just angry, but we are also people who pursue peace. What we want to see today is I, I made a little acronym for us out of the word peace. Because I want to put some rubber to the road. How do we do this? How do we make peace with people when we are in conflict? How do we show the world around us that we're different? That when we are in conflict, we want to see peace happen. And so if you're taking notes, these would be a great thing, I think, to write down for your community group discussion. This would be a really good thing. Uh, Community group leaders, if you need extra material, here you go. You can read these verses uh, as you go and you can talk about this acronym. First thing is P-E-P for is to pray. James 4, verses 8 through 10. It won't be on the screen, but the texts are there. You can write them down. You can read them later. It says this. It says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. When you find yourself in the midst of conflict, draw near to God. He promises he will draw near to you. It will radically change your marriage. Radically change your marriage. The next time you start to be in a quibble with one another, to stop, 
pause and say, we're going to pray first. We're going to invite God into this total messy moment. It will radically change you. I promise it will. That if you pray and go to God before you go to other people, and you admit your sin, and you humble yourself before the Lord, you admit your uh, part of the conflict to Him, you purify your heart, you no longer become double-minded as a person who wants to please your, yourself and please God, but through prayer come to a place where you just want to please God, and you humble yourself, it will change the way you deal with conflict. Once we have prayed and we have drawn nearer to the Lord, we have become humble, we need to evaluate. We need to evaluate the situation. Proverbs 19.11 tells us, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Good sense makes one slow to anger. Anger is usually exasperated by people who want to move quickly. I want to have my way, and I want to have it now, and when I get resistance, I'm just going to get louder and meaner, and I'm going to force it to happen. But if we can pause, and we can pray, and we can evaluate the situation, we need to consider, is this even really worth messing with this? And this is really hard because there are two people in this, there are two kinds of people in this room right now. There are those of you who hate conflict, and I'm like nervous to tell you this verse because you'll never deal with anything, and you'll always say everything needs to be overlooked all the time. And there are those of you who like conflict, or maybe you wouldn't say you like it, but you're certainly not afraid of it. And you make a big deal out of everything. And making mountains out of molehills and making the sky fall is like your MO, right? Those are the realities of all of us in this room. And, and some of us oscillate between the two. I, I can be either one of those things at different points in my life. And that's why we want to evaluate. We need to ask the question. It is to glory to a man to overlook an offense. That means you don't go and ask for forgiveness. That means I, I'm telling you right now, you will not make it in family life or church life if everything is a big deal. If you cannot overlook some stuff, it's going to be really hard to make it in a church, in any church. It's going to be really hard to make it with your kids, your wife, your husband, whatever that is. It's going to be real hard because not everything, not everything is really that big of a deal. There are some things you're going to evaluate and you're going to say, you know what? Love covers a multitude of sins and then this is going to die. And then you can skip down to the last one when we get there, right? And you can just execute on some commitments. Or you're going to get there and you're going to look at the situation and you're going to say, I just can't. I can't just overlook it. This has to be addressed. And that brings us to A, address the issue directly. You want to address this directly. Matthew 18, Jesus tells us this in verse 15 through 20. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and you alone. In him alone, excuse me. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Step one is always go directly to the person that you're in conflict with. If you come to me and you start complaining about a fellow church member, I'm going to listen to you. And then at the end, I'm going to say, wow, what did they say when you talked to them? And if you say, I haven't talked to them yet, I'm going to say, okay, we're going to pretend like this conversation didn't happen. How about you go and talk to them? Because that's what Jesus tells you to do. A lot of conflict, if we would just do this, usually get started. A lot of conflict gets escalated because it's a big problem when it's like, oh, so you had this problem with me, and then you went and told six other people? Well, now I'm really mad. If we would do what's right from the beginning and go directly to the person, that's what we want to do. We want to go directly to those people. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that you may that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
And if he refuses to listen to him, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And for where the two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is what church discipline is. We talk about this and what it looks like. I do want to be clear here. It's not a checklist. I'm mad at this person, and so now I'm going to go grab my friend. Oh, there's two of us, and now I get to go take them in front of the church. It's not how this works. It's, they got to be credible witnesses, so it can't just be you and your buddy going and ganging up on somebody else because you're establishing some credibility in this situation. And what may very well help it is you bring another person into this. They might look at you and say, hey, I think you need to evaluate this. And this might be a situation where you can just overlook. You guys are here. You're at this place. You're talking about it. But when we come, we want to make peace. That brings us to see in these situations. And maybe you need to bring somebody else in to help you do this. We have to be willing to compromise. There has to be compromise in uh, conflict. It is possible, I suppose, that there are conflicts where only one person has grievously sinned against the other. Most of the time, both people are bringing their own baggage to this situation. And compromise is going to have to be a unique part of this. Most of the time, we're going to have to come and we're going to have to acknowledge our faults in the conflict and we're going to have to be willing to compromise. People who cannot compromise are people who are looking out for their own interest. People who cannot compromise don't understand 1 Corinthians 13 when it says, love does not look out for its own interest, but for the interest of others. They don't understand 1 Corinthians 13 when it says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. They come, they've got their record of wrongs, here's all the bad things you did to me, I want my retribution now, and there's no willingness to compromise, to bend or to move. But if we want to make peace, we want to be people who say life is valuable. It's so valuable that we're going to even root out the things that lead to murder. Things like anger and our desires at war against each other. Why do we fight and quarrel with one another, James 4? Because your passage and desires burn within you. We have to be people who believe Philippians 2.4 that says, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. We have to be people who bring empathy into a situation, even with somebody that you're angry with. You have to try to see their side of the situation. You have to be willing to concede on something and compromise. And if we can do that, that brings us to E, we must execute. I've been through confrontation uh, and tried to help people mediate, and this doesn't happen. We talk through stuff. We work through these kinds of things. We talk about our own uh, problems. Everybody seems good in the room. And then we leave the room. The mediator leaves. I've done this myself, right? Somebody helps me. And then I start to replay things in my mind. Or I make, and I don't execute on the commitments that I'm making in the midst of that conflict. If we don't actually follow through, we will not have peace. Peace requires, if it, peace is, is wonderful, but that doesn't mean it's, it's not easy. You're going to have to execute on this. You're going to have to choose to do what is right. 
Ephesians 4, 31, 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So when you forgive somebody or you come into this place and you guys can compromise and you're both saying, okay, we can now move forward. You're saying, I'm going to execute that I'm no longer going to be bitter towards you. I'm not I'm longer going to start showing wrath and anger and clamor. I'm not going to slander you to other people. I'm not going to feel malice towards you in my heart. But instead... Verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So what do we need to do? We need to be people who are kind, who are tender-hearted, who are forgiving. Because we have been forgiven of much. We can forgive much. We forgive as God and Christ has forgiven us. Here's what that means. And there probably needs to be some verbal commitment between you and this other person. You've got to say, I will not continue to dwell on this. When I'm alone in the shower and I'm having my shower fights, I'm not going to keep fighting with you. All right? We've all done it. I should have said this. No, you shouldn't have. It's a good thing you didn't. Thank God for that. All right? Quit doing that. What you're saying is you're committing that you're not going to continue to dwell on this issue. It's not going to replay over and over and over again in your head. You're going to say to them, I will not talk to other people about this. I will not go to somebody else and say, yeah, we made up, but can you believe what he or she did? That's not, that's not peace. That's fake peace. It's slander. I'm not going to go and I'm not going to talk to other people about what happened. And the other thing is you need to commit to is I will not use this against you in the future. When new conflict arises, and it will, what you cannot do is bring out all that old garbage and say, but you did this, 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 and this. If you're saying you forgive it, if you're saying that that is over, you're saying that it is nailed to the cross and it is dead, it is gone, and now the new self is living. We cannot move forward in marriage and deep friendship and membership and covenant in a local church. If we are a people who every time something starts to not go our way, drudges at the past that we've said we've forgiven. When you say it is forgiven, it needs to be forgiven. You're not going to continue to bring it up in the future. I made up my own acronym, but a lot of this comes from a wonderful book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. I would, I would encourage everybody to read it. It's a wonderful and helpful thing. And so that's what we want to, to look at. That's what it looks like to be people of peace, that we are people in the middle of conflict. We take a moment, we stop, and we pray. We then evaluate the situation and we decide, does this need to continue on? Do I need to continue to look to this? Or can I say this is enough? Or, and, if, and then we need to decide if we need to move on, that we will address that issue directly. As we address that, we are going to come in with a spirit of compromise. We're going to know that we're not going to get our own way out of this situation. And finally, we will execute. Where we, if forgiveness is extended, if forgiveness will truly be extended. I want to conclude simply with this. This command is like all of the other commands in two ways. This command shows us the holiness of God, and it shows us our deep sinfulness. When we look at Jesus' teaching on this, we can easily walk into the room and say, yes, murder command. I'm not going to feel guilty this Sunday because I haven't killed anybody. But what we see when we really dive into it and the value that God places on life and why he does that, and, and we look to all that we've talked about this morning, 
our vision of God's holiness is expanded because he is saying root out in you not just murder, but everything that leads to murder. So your anger, your, your bitterness, your malice, it cannot be named among his people because we're to look like him. And we know that's not me. I am a work in progress. I still get angry. But as that happens, as those two realities come clashing together, the holiness of God and the truth of my own sinfulness, what it ought to do in your life is grow your appreciation for the wonder, the beauty, and the mystery of the cross of Jesus Christ. As those two things grow in comparison, our vision and our sight of God's glory expands with them. Because we realize what he has done for us. He died not just for murderers, but for angry men and women like us and people who allow their passions and desires to rule them. And that's who he is.